Hi, peeps. You're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, a baking podcast from the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books, including my latest, Snackable Bakes. Each Saturday, I'm hanging with the sweetest bakers around and taking a deep dive into their signature bakes. Today, I'm talking all things pavlovas with author and baker Zoe Francois. She's the talent behind the gorgeous Zoe Bakes Instagram account and the Zoe Bakes Cakes cookbook. She also has a show on the Magnolia Network, and I hope you all caught my guest appearance on the Minneapolis State Fair episode. Zoe and I ate our way across the fair and had the best time. Clearly, Zoe bakes lots of things, but she's become known for her gorgeous tutu-shaped pavlovas, which were a nod to the origins of the dessert. Zoe's going to walk us through how to make this meringue-based confection, so get ready for her best tips and tricks so you can make a pavlova at home. Stay tuned for Zoe. Today's show is presented by Le Creuset and California Prunes. A big thank you to everyone who has left ratings and reviews for our podcast. I'm practically in tears reading them. Shoegal 606, that's a great idea about a chocolate chip cookie episode. And Hannah BK20, thank you for the kind words. If you've become a regular listener, I'd love to know what you think and any bakers or baked goods you'd love featured on the show. Here's a word about Le Creuset. For nearly a century, Le Creuset has been creating joy in the kitchen and beyond as the first in colorful cookware, the finest in quality and design, and the favorite of generations of cooks and bakers. Here on She's My Cherry Pie, there's a reason I always ask our guests about the tools and equipment they rely on. You can have the best ingredients around and be one of the world's top culinary talents, but you also need cookware and bakeware you can depend on. Professionally, I've relied on Le Creuset for years when I'm developing recipes, testing new treats for my cookbooks, or making something precise like caramel. And personally, I use my Le Creuset pieces all the time when cooking for myself or my family. If you need a special gift for any upcoming college graduations or weddings, you can't go wrong with a classic Le Creuset Dutch oven, which you can use for almost everything. You can make individual molten chocolate cakes or berry crumbles in them or even use them for your mise en place. Head over to LeCreuset.com to browse their gorgeous colors, find other gift ideas, and snag some recipes. Let's chat with today's guest. Zoe! So excited to have you on She's My Cherry Pie and to talk pavlovas and so much more with you. I am so excited to be here. Nothing I love more than chatting cake. Yay! So you and I met. When I sent you a copy of my second book, The Vintage Baker, way back in 2018, and you made a cake from it, I think around then, I think it was around when you were turning 50, you felt like there was a shift professionally around that time. Oh, it was huge. Yeah. And I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about what was before the shift Mm. and then a little bit about what (laughs) happened with the shift. Okay. So before the shift, my focus was on parenting, really. I was writing books. I had the bread book series. and Can I was, you tell people about that just in case yeah, they don't know? Yeah. In 2005, I wrote a book with a friend of mine called Artisan Bread in Five Minutes a Day. And we passed it in. And I thought, this is 
an amazing experience to have while I'm staying home raising my kids. And I had left the restaurant industry. And so this was just a great endeavor to use up my time, but I didn't think it was going to go anywhere. (laughs) One million books later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So basically, I got on a freight train that I didn't realize was going to speed down my life. And so it took over. And it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect because I was raising my two boys. When I turned 50, my eldest turned 18, my youngest was 16, and I really decided it was my turn. I wanted to dive into pastry, which was my love. I love bread, but I think I had said everything I needed to say about five-minute bread. That was really the shift, is that I felt psychically like I had the time to dive into my own passions and spend the time on myself, not only for myself, but also for my boys. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted them to see me doing something that I really loved instead of keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to baking in a sec. But as a mom, it feels so good to be showing your children that there are things in life you can find and love and be passionate about. I think it's one of, now that I look back on it, it's one of maybe my best parenting decisions was to show them not only that their mom is about something for herself and more than just for them, taking care of them, but also what it looks like to be really passionate about work. I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like when the shift started to happen, there was also maybe an embracing of Instagram Mm -hmm. that shifted Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. I think what's wonderful about your story, I mean, we all have maybe ambivalent, not always happy, good feelings about Instagram, (laughs) but you're a great example of how I think it, it, well, it helped you in two huge ways, books and television. But Mm -hmm, tell mm -hmm. us about the shift that led, because you were already on Instagram at that point. I was on it. The shift happened because I wanted to do my own book. In the publishing world, marketing reigns supreme. You can have the best concept in the world, but if you don't have a means to sell that concept, publishers can't risk it with you. And even though I had sold nearly a million copies of my bread book, I was going out on my own because I had a co-author for those books. I was going out on my own. This was a brand new brand for me. And so it was a little bit risky for them, even though I was a known bookseller. I had to build up my own brand, the Zoe Bakes brand, as opposed to the bread. That's why I really dove into Instagram. But The shift in doing Instagram and being there, the shift into gaining followers was when I shifted from just taking pictures of what I was making Mm -hmm. to doing tutorials. I realized that I would post these pretty pictures of things that I was baking and people would like them, but they weren't baking them. As a recipe developer, if people aren't baking what you're putting out into the world, What are we really doing it for? I realized that maybe the things that I was baking were a little bit aspirational for home cooks. And so I figured if I just show people step by step that nothing I'm doing is that difficult at all. And it's so much fun 
And once I started doing the videos, people started baking and posting about it and getting super excited. And I was getting super excited. I fell in love with it. I also think there's maybe a little piece of the IG story that I just wanted you to tap into because I think it's interesting. I feel like at first, maybe pre-pandemic, it was more of a hands and pans yeah. kind of teaching. And then when the pandemic hit, you wanted a connection with your audience and you kind of turned the camera. Yes. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the first videos that I was doing, like you said, my husband had jerry-rigged my camera so that it could point straight down on the counter. First, I was doing it with one hand and trying to bake with one hand, which was a nightmare. He was an engineering major and figured out this jerry-rigged camera. So I had just my hands and music, and I would make the recipe. And it was great because it was very simple. It was very quiet. I didn't talk. I just made the recipe, and it was really effective. During the pandemic, I wanted the community, and so I started doing Instagram Live so that it was more of a connection. The hands thing was not so much about me connecting with anyone. It was purely showing the recipe. And I needed it. I was like craving that interaction. And so I turned the camera around. It terrified me at first, but I was doing it with my sons. They were like manning the camera. And we ended up having such a blast. I loved it. I loved interacting with people. I loved the questions. I loved that my boys were involved. I mean, the whole thing was just such a joy. And is it fair to say that doing those with your sons was part of what led to a TV show? Yes, absolutely. It is. Tell us a little bit about the show. Well, I was actually working on a different show before this. A production company had pitched to me a show that was more like a talk show and people would call in and tell me their recipes and I would help them through them. And then another separate production company called me and told me about the Magnolia Network, that this was a budding thing and it was about to become its own network. I had seen Chip and Joanna's shows and I really appreciated their sort of no-nonsense. It wasn't about like tap dancing and entertainment. It was really about their craft and they were very sort of serious craftspeople but fun and making it accessible to people. I feel like that's my style. This other show we were working on was a little bit more, I was going to have to be a character. I was going to try it, but it just didn't feel in my soul. It didn't feel like me. I wanted to tell the stories of other bakers because I get inspired by going to restaurants, being with bakers, going to the grocery store and seeing what's beautiful on the shelves. I wanted to tell the story of all of the incredible bakers and makers and producers that are in my hometown of Minneapolis and greater Minnesota, and then come home, show people how to do it. Because I didn't just want to show where I was showcasing other people. I wanted to empower people to actually bake the things that I'm making. So it was very important for me that the show be both inspirational but also educational. So your first solo book, Zoe Bakes Cakes, mm -hmm. I was particularly smitten with the Cake Academy. Mm -hmm. 
which is the mm-hmm. first part of Zoe's book. And I wondered if you would just tell us a little bit about it, because I think it speaks to everything we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. It's very similar to the philosophy that I had about the show, is that I wanted the book, I want somebody to come into the book and be able to make a recipe. The recipes stand on their own, and you can go start to finish in a recipe and be done with it. But there's a lot of people out there that want to know why these things are working or how they're working. In every recipe, there'll be like a Cake Academy section, and Mm -hmm. people can refer back to those sections if they're a little confused. Okay, she wants stiff peaks, and she's explaining it, but why do I need them? That's right. And then you go to to Zoe's Cake Academy, and you know why. That's right. And I also love that at the end of the Cake Academy chapter, you're like, look, if this is TMI, you can just ignore it. (laughs) Exactly. Also, Zoe's writing is great. Yeah, some people are going to want to dive into that and are going to be fascinated by it, and some people are going to be bored and intimidated. And I don't want that. People want it. It's there. And people will dip in and out of it. I love that. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you to California Prunes for sponsoring this episode of She's My Cherry Pie. It's a funny coincidence that California Prunes is our sponsor because I love prunes. Last year, my doctor told me I should eat six a day for healthy bones, and I've been hooked ever since. Prunes are also good for your heart and your gut, and they're loaded with nutrients like vitamin K, dietary fiber, potassium, and antioxidants. And moreover, they are delicious. They're 100% my go-to smart snack. Snacking aside, I didn't realize how versatile California prunes are for cooking and baking, but it makes perfect sense. They're sweet but complex with a rich, jammy flavor that complements so many ingredients from chocolate to cheese. You can use chopped California prunes in baked goods like muffins and scones the same way you would any other dried fruit. California prunes are a lush and healthy addition to any of these treats. You can also make prune puree, which is prunes and water blended together, and swap that into certain recipes in place of eggs or oil or to reduce the amount of sugar. For more on prune puree and great recipes that include prunes, head over to californiaprunes.org. Now, back to our guest. So now I would love to talk about Mm. pavlovas with you. And I know it's one of the most, if not the most popular recipe on your website, Zoe Bakes. It is. And I wondered first if you could tell people what a pavlova is in case somebody doesn't know. Yeah. So a pavlova is essentially a meringue that is fortified with a little bit of vinegar to strengthen it a little bit of cornstarch to make it more cakey. So it's a meringue, but it's also a cake. Typically, it's just spread out willy-nilly on a baking sheet, baked so that it's crisp on the outside, but a little bit cakey on the inside, piled up with whipped cream, and you can put anything you want on it. So that's a pavlova. And then talk to us about the shape. Okay, so pavlova is one of those homely but absolutely stunningly delicious desserts. But it's not much to look at, and Instagram is such a visual medium. Pavlova itself is named after Anna Pavlova, who is a ballerina. I figured I made this thing. It wasn't gorgeous. I didn't think it was going to wow anybody to look at it. And so I figured Anna Pavlova, ballerina, I'll make a pavlova that looks like a tutu. So I piled the 
meringue onto the baking tray and I swept it up into like a cylinder and then I made sweeping motions with a metal spatula so that it was fluted like a tutu. And then when it baked, it belled out like a dress. I shocked myself because I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't think it was going to work. What happens is because it's so tall, the inside of the pavlova collapses. So you're left with this meringue, crispy shell, and then this soft cake on the inside. I piped the whipped cream, I think also lemon curd, and put berries, raspberries, and passion fruit. I was stunned by it, and Instagram was stunned by it. Yeah. <laughs> Pavlova is unique to other meringues in this incredible texture, right? The crispiness yeah. on the outside. And I've always—you're describing it as cakey. I've also—and since I love marshmallows, of course, I remember this. I've also heard it described almost as marshmallowy yeah. in the middle. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. so interesting to me. And again, we'll get into some of these ingredients, of course. But I love that it's like the vinegar and the cornstarch. Mm-hmm that is going to give you, I think often with recipes, I've made a lot of pavlovas. I knew it was meringue, but I wasn't aware of what was in this meringue that was separating it from others. One of the things that I added to the pavlova, which is not intuitive (laughs) when you're thinking about a meringue because you want the stability of the egg whites. The egg whites are the protein in the egg, and so they're actually very strong. And when you whip them you can whip air into that protein and get this ethereal, beautiful, glossy, gorgeous meringue. I'm obsessed with meringues. Okay, so let's dive into this recipe. So first things first, it's kind of a low oven. It's at 275 Mm -hmm. degrees. Mm -hmm. You're going to put that rack in kind of the bottom third of your oven. Take your parchment. You're going to draw a six-inch circle. Mm -hmm. Does it expand? Yes. Okay, so it's not going to be six inches. No. If you do a six-inch circle, it's going to be eight. Okay. About eight inches. Okay, good to know. And then you flip the paper, which I know why, but can you tell people why you flip the paper? (laughs) Because typically I'm using a pencil or Sharpie, and I don't want that to be part of the recipe. So by flipping over the paper, you can still see that mark, but you're not going to be ingesting Perfect. Perfect. Probably the most important ingredient in a pavlova are your egg whites. And I know you've said that you want them to be room temperature. You've even said maybe warm. Mm-hmm. The whites mm-hmm. to be warm or room yeah. temp is okay. Yeah. We don't have to worry too much about making them anything more than room temp. No, room temp, warm, either way, it's going to expand the proteins more. They're going to take on more air ah. that way than if they're cold. It's such an interesting recipe because there's so many things that seem to contradict each other. A fresh egg is stronger. The proteins are stronger, so it can take on more air. The older the egg, the weaker it gets. You'll notice when you break into a fresh egg that the egg white is very viscous. If you're breaking into an aged egg white, it's runny. It feels really watery. It doesn't have as much strength. How do you know (laughs) if your eggs are really fresh or not? There's a date 
on most store-bought eggs, or you walk across the street and you get your best friend's chicken's eggs. <laughs> if, if you're Zoe. <laughs> That's the best way to know. But yeah, store will have it. Typically, anything you buy at the store is going to be pretty fresh. The fresher the egg, the better. Also, we're going to be adding water. So we want the really intense, beautiful, strong protein to begin with. I feel like you can tell when you separate Mm -hmm. a fresh egg Mm -hmm. because it's so tight and bouncy that it's almost Mm -hmm. hard to pull Mm -hmm. it apart from the yolk. Yes. Whereas an older egg, you'll find that you can separate them, at least with your hands, very easily. That's a good thing to know because you'll see in Zoe's recipe as we keep talking about it, once you know if you have old or young eggs, it may affect how you're going to use some of these ingredients. But I loved that. And I loved you have two different techniques for cracking eggs. There's one where you're cracking it so the crack is like facing up towards the ceiling. There's another one where you're putting everything into a bowl and fishing out yolks. Yeah. Can you tell us about both? Because I think the second is like what you do in a professional kitchen. The first one is, I think, what most people do. You crack the egg. You, like you said, you have basically two cups facing up and you rock them back and forth to get the yolk separated from the white. The second one that you're referring to is something that we would do in a professional kitchen because we're cracking like 150 eggs at a time. So we just crack all the eggs and then go in with our hands and pluck out the yolks. Super easy. The yolks are much sturdier than you would think. If I have to do a ton of eggs, that's how I will do it. I've seen people use water bottles to suck them up. I get my hands in everything. feel like part of pastry is the feeling of the dough, the touching of the meringue, understanding how these things feel, not just look, but what they feel like. And so for me, getting my hands in there is very important. And if you forget to warm your eggs, okay to just put them with the shell in a little bowl of warm water? Yeah. So what I would do is whole egg in shell, run it under hot water. It takes maybe four or five minutes, and you have a room-temperature egg. Super easy and worth doing. Perfect. Are you okay with people measuring out the five whites that this recipe calls for? Or do you, in the end, would you always want people to use a scale? It's 150 grams. I mean, I've done this a billion times. I always bake by weights, by grams. It's easier for me. It's easier for everybody. They just don't know it yet because they're not used to it. It's more consistent. 150 grams is always 150 grams, but five egg whites can be, oh, so many different numbers because you open up a carton of eggs and they're all different sizes. Jen's eggs across the street are enormous. You would think she was like raising ostrich over there. Baking by weights is really a game changer and I highly recommend it. And I feel like it's moving that way. I feel like most books at this point give you the options. Yes, I agree. Yep. So we're going to put our egg whites into the bowl of a stand mixer. I know you have maybe several stand mixers at home, but do you have a favorite brand that you would share with people? Well, okay, so I do have several. I have different mixers for different purposes. I've had a KitchenAid five-quart stand mixer since I was in college. I started a cookie company in college, and I this was the first thing I ever invested in. 35 years later, I still have it. It's a workhorse, and I adore it. And then I have a Wolf mixer that is 
seven quarts. So it's just, it's enormous when I'm doing a big batch of anything, including pavlova. All of them work really well. The interesting thing about the different brands is the shape of the whisk attachment. Just like you have different shaped whisks, there's egg whisks, there's balloon whisks, they have different shaped whisks too. It's not that the outcome of the meringue is necessarily different, but the timing Mm. is really different. I wanted to give visual cues instead of numbers because new bakers tend to go by whatever's written on the page. So if I say three minutes later, you're going to have this meringue, they're going to go for three minutes, but it really depends on the shape of your whisk. I know this is getting really into the weeds. Honey, that's Um, the podcast. We call it (laughs) She's My Cherry Weeds. It's so fascinating to me that something like that is really going to have an impact. So it's like the shape of your whisk, the size and shape of your oven, it all plays into it. And so you have to be a little bit flexible. Yeah, I agree. I think I probably know the answer. I'm assuming if you don't have a stand mixer, you can use a hand mixer. But again, it's going to take much longer or maybe not even. Okay, so yes, you can, but... And there is a but. You have to have one with a lot of guts to it. There are some where I find you just don't have the power to really aerate certain things. The other thing is you cannot make meringue in a plastic bowl. It has to be glass or stainless steel. Meringue, whipped cream, just about anything. I would just avoid plastic bowls for mixing. Next ingredients, we've got our we've got our whites in our bowl, okay. in our metal bowl or our glass bowl from our stand mixer. Okay. We're going to add our kosher salt. I'm just wondering, yeah. do, are you always a kosher salt person? Do you sometimes do fine sea salt? Okay, I've been playing around with it more. There isn't really a right and wrong salt to use, but in terms of kosher salt, I mean, there's Morton's, there's Diamond. Those two are not equal in terms of how salty your recipe will be. The one type of salt I would say stay away from is something super coarse or like a flaky sea salt. On the top, it's awesome, but in the recipe, it's not going to dissolve quickly enough. And so I would say kosher salt. Table salt, you can do, but you have to reduce the amount. Next ingredient is cream of tartar, and this is back to our old versus fresh eggs because it can be optional because you said that if it's an older egg— You really need it to help with structure because the proteins aren't as strong. But with a fresher egg, you might be able to leave it out? Yeah. I say leave it out just because it's not in everybody's pantry. I don't say leave it out. I say you can leave it out. I would put it in because it's just one more level of insurance that you're going to get a really nice, strong protein. Cream of tartar is an acid. And it's an acid derived from the process of making wine, which I find so fascinating. But it's an acid, and when you add an acid to the egg whites, it strengthens them. It strengthens the proteins. And so you get a stronger meringue at the end. So I would say if you have it in your pantry, use it. It's just going to be one more level. We're going to add another ingredient deeper in that's also going to have this effect on it. But it's not one of those, it's absolutely not going to work if you don't use it, which is why I say it's optional. 
And especially if your eggs are fresh, then, you know, you're going to be fine. That makes sense. Okay, we didn't talk about the cleanliness of your bowl because you're trying to structure the proteins in the egg whites so that they'll take on the air. If you have any fat near these egg whites, it's going to inhibit that from happening because the fat plays with the protein and it inhibits them from connecting with each other and taking on air. Your bowl has to be perfectly clean. And some people even wipe the bowl clean with vinegar and then rinse it out to make sure. So that's one thing to just make sure that you don't have any fat in there. I'm not sure if this is a Pavlova thing or maybe I live under a rock. I'm not sure. But I feel like often instructions when you're whipping egg whites Mm -hmm. is to whip till foamy and Mm -hmm. then start adding sugar. And I thought, and I know there's a water element that we're going to talk about. So that might have something to do with it. But I thought it was interesting that in your recipe, you start with that cream of tartar, that salt, and your eggs, and your egg whites, and you bring it to to medium high. Mm -hmm. You're on Mm -hmm. medium high till medium peaks. Mm -hmm. And then add the sugar. Right. Really, the technique is that you want to establish that foam. You want to make sure that your egg whites are going to take on some foam. The other thing is that if you dump all the sugar in there, the proteins are not going to be able to align themselves with each other as well and as strongly if they have the crystals of the sugar breaking them apart. And so by establishing the foam, you've already got those proteins working together in harmony. And then the reason that you don't just dump sugar on top of them is so that you're not deflating all of that beautiful air that you're trying to incorporate into the recipe. By sprinkling the sugar on, you're allowing those proteins to stay aligned. We brought our egg whites on medium high, two medium peaks, our kosher salts there, our cream of tartar. Mm-hmm. Now we have this fabulous, like, Zoe ingredient, the cold water. We're going to drop our mixer speed to medium low, drizzle in the cold water. Yep. Can you remind us why it's so fascinating and cool and different? Yeah, so you have this strong protein structure. But in order to get the texture that I really wanted on this pavlova, I wanted it to be lighter on the inside. I didn't want it to have this sort of dense layer in there. And so by adding the water, you're expanding the egg whites even more. You're thinning them out a little bit. That's why you want to make sure that you have the strength in there so that they can take it. If I was adding water to the older egg whites that are already a little bit watery and not using the cream of tartar, which made them strong, it may spread out more. Yeah. Understood. I love that. Next, we're going to start sprinkling in super fine sugar mm-hmm. a little bit at a time. Can you tell us about super yes. fine and tell us how we make it? I love the sugar smoke. Yeah. Okay, so super fine sugar in this recipe is very important because we're adding it to our already established meringue. Like you said, we've gotten this thing to medium peaks and beyond. We're sprinkling in the super fine sugar, and the goal of this is that that sugar is going to melt into it and become this just like beautiful glossy meringue. If you use crystal sugar, and not all products are 
equal in terms of the size of those crystals. Some of them are quite large and they won't have time to dissolve and become married into the recipe. And it will actually leave sort of pockmarks on the outer shell of your pavlova because they haven't melted while they're whipping. And so they melt in the oven and you can see them. And so some people say, why isn't my thing perfectly smooth? And it's that. It's because the sugar didn't have enough time and it wasn't fine enough. Super fine sugar or caster sugar, it's called in the UK. Baker's sugar, I think you, you can find it on the shelf as baker's sugar, is just granulated sugar that's been ground down so that the crystals are very fine. And like you said, you can make it. I just put it into my food processor. and I had, it just died. I had a food processor that I also bought in college that was ancient, but it did the job. I'd throw just granulated sugar into the food processor and let it go. And you'll see it. You'll see the crystals getting smaller. And it will start to produce like a white smoke <laughs> that comes out. And that's typically when I know it's done. But yeah, so you can make your own. You want to make sure that you go pretty far in getting it nice and fine. Yeah, I think you said about five minutes because it's true. I've seen that dust kind of come mm -hmm. out and be like, what's on fire? And you said, it's just sugar dust. And this is the period that we talked about earlier about the incorporation of the, the melting of the sugar in the egg whites. It's happening now. It's not like it's mm -hmm. something that happens later in the mm -hmm. oven. That's why we go for, I think... About five, yes, mm -hmm. now speed goes to high, mm -hmm. and you're going to beat until these stiff, glossy peaks. Form. Yeah, because you're going to get there sooner. Part of the process is not just getting to the volume that you want, but it's also making sure that sugar is behaving itself and that it's dissolving into the egg white mixture that you've got going. Perfect. And then, I love this, we actually take our bowl off of our stand mixer, mm -hmm. and we're going to add our last three ingredients, which mm -hmm. are cornstarch, vanilla, and vinegar. You either like to use the whisk from mm -hmm. your machine to be, do the folding, as it were. Yes. If you're not using that and you're using a spatula, do yeah. you have like a favorite brand or a favorite kind that you like to work with? I have so many rubber spatulas. I think that rubber spatulas and scraping the bowl is probably the thing I talk about maybe most. <laughs> it's one of the most essential parts of baking is scraping down the bowl. In a meringue, it's easy to get in there. Everything is uniform until we start adding these other ingredients. But in something like a cake batter or cookie dough, so many things get stuck at the bottom of the bowl and you really need to get down there and in there. I don't know if I have a favorite brand, but the favorite type is a rubber spatula that has some body to it. I don't want these flippy, floppy, flimsy, soft ones. I want something that's really going to hug the bowl when I'm going through it and have enough body to lift up whatever it is. So something that's sturdy and 100% dishwasher approved because I do not want to wash a rubber spatula by hand. We kind of mentioned this before, but just this cornstarch now mm. is helping to create this slightly mm -hmm. softer meringue. Yeah. And I think you said it makes it even a tiny bit easier when it comes time to cut it. Yes. As opposed to a meringue that like shatters the minute mm. you touch it with a knife. Yeah, yeah. So it gives it like a tender quality. So what it's doing is it's 
adding some starch to it, which gives it that cakey quality, but it's also absorbing some of the water. Because we've added so much water to it, the cornstarch is helping to counter that a little bit. And that's why I was saying in this recipe, it seems like things are contradicting each other. Like, why do you do that if then you have to do this? They all play together to get the result that you want. And you can try, I mean, this is the fun part about recipes, at least for me, is try it without the cornstarch or try it without the water. And then you'll see the differences and how I got to the texture and flavor and pavlova that I wanted. But everybody's different. And this is the fun part. And that's why I say this might be your first pavlova. But hopefully it's not your last and this will be a journey that you'll take with it. Next, we're going to add some vanilla. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to know if there's a favorite (laughs) brand that you wanted to share with us. Well, yeah, it's the one I make. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a homemade vanilla person. I know not all people are, and they have their special brands. But I make my own, super simple, partly because I always have vanilla beans that I'm using instead of discarding them because they're so crazy expensive. I just push them down into my bottle of homemade vanilla. I've had one since 2012, and I just keep adding vodka and vanilla beans, and that is all vanilla extract is, essentially. It's super easy, but you do have to let it mature. Can you tell us, A, a ratio, and B, like a length of time? Yeah, okay, so let's say you have, what, like a pint or 750 milliliters? Maybe start out with 12 really healthy vanilla beans that you've split and scraped the seeds and put into the bottle, and then you fill that up with vodka. Doesn't matter what kind. Doesn't have to be expensive. Some people do like to use other kinds of alcohol. I like vodka because it doesn't compete with the flavor. All you're getting is the vanilla. So when you put it into your recipe, you have the vanilla flavor. The alcohol burns off. All extracts are made with alcohol. I think people are very surprised by this. When they're making their own, they want to do an alcohol-free extract. You can make a paste with glycerin if you don't want the alcohol, but all extracts that you've put in your recipes before have had alcohol, and it just burns off. Love that. Final ingredient is vinegar, which Mm -hmm. is a little unique in this recipe because Mm -hmm. I think you wrote that often there's always going to be an acid, but usually, I think you wrote that usually it's cream of tartar or vinegar. Mm. It's not both. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about why the vinegar is here and also if there's a favorite kind that you like to use? Okay, so the vinegar is here in a very similar capacity to the cream of tartar because it's an acid. If you're making a meringue and you have it whipped up in your bowl and it's super glossy and beautiful, you can add a teaspoon of vinegar to that meringue and watch it and it will get tighter. You can see the difference in the bowl. I mean, maybe because I've done it so many times, it's super obvious to me. But next time you try that, watch it, and you will see the vinegar react to it. It strengthens it immediately. This is yet another insurance that you're going to have the strength of it. Because we're asking this pavlova not to just be a blob on the paper, but we want it to stand up and do its beautiful tutu thing, It needed to be stronger than a typical pavlova recipe because I'm asking more of it. 
then we're going to take all of our gorgeous foam Mm -hmm. after we've just, again, we just did all of that either with a spatula or with a whisk from our stand mixer off the mixer just by hand, which I love just to kind of be gentle at the end. Mm -hmm. Now Mm -hmm. you're going to put all of your foam into that six-inch circle that you drew on your parchment. Parchment's been flipped. And spread it into this moundy shape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then use a large offset to Mm -hmm. swipe grooves in the foam. Can you tell us your favorite offset? And Mm -hmm. also talk to me about mounding and swiping grooves. Is it hard? It's almost like when you're buttercreaming a cake. You're getting that really smooth surface around the edge. The key is when you're mounding it not to trap air bubbles inside. You want to make sure that it's one solid mass of this meringue because if you have air bubbles in there and you put it in the oven, steam is going to be created in that air bubble and it's going to pop out of shape. So make sure that you have it in one really nice mound so you don't get cracking. And then you're going to take your offset spatula and you're going to, just like you do with a cake, you're going to smooth the edges, flatten the top maybe an inch wide, maybe three quarters of an inch wide metal spatula. does not matter if it's straight or offset. I take it from the base of the pavlova and I swipe it very gently, maybe going into it a quarter to a half of an inch, creating a groove all the way up. At the top, I drag it off the top so that you get like a little Dairy Queen swirl because you want the drama. You said create curls at the top curls and I was wondering top. what the yeah. curls were. I love so that. So you know that Dairy Queen flip that you get? That's sort of the goal. If you don't get it the first time, you can play with it. It's not that precious. I mean, you don't want to spend hours doing this. <laughs> you know, this is like a, you know, five-minute project. Less once you get the hang of it. And then you just move on. And you keep doing that over and over, swiping up, getting that little curly cue at the top. And then at the very end, you go into the top of it and you create... It's almost like a volcano. So you want that little bit of a hole in the top. So just a slight indent. Maybe go down an inch and create that indent because you want to tell the meringue what you want it to do. (laughs) So if you don't create that little well at the top, it's not going to fall cleanly. And sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll take it out of the oven And it will not have fallen to look, it does look like a volcano when it comes out. It'll actually have a hole at the top and you'll see that the interior of it has collapsed down in it, which is exactly what we want. And then you have the shell around the outside. If it hasn't done that exactly and you still have a shell at the top as well, you can just take a paring knife and very gently cut that off so it collapses as well. Perfect. We're going to bake for about an hour and 15 minutes Mm -hmm. until it's kind of lightly tan um, Mm -hmm. and pale, lowering maybe the oven to 250 if it takes on too much color. That's right. And this is where I think recipe writing is most challenging because everybody's oven behaves so differently. I have a fairly large capacity oven. And what that does is it's less intense heat than people who have tiny little ovens. They bake through quickly. 
And so recipe timing is really about knowing your oven. Most ovens come with a window at this point, a window and a light. So turn on the light. If it looks like it's turning tan, drop the temperature because maybe your oven either needs to be calibrated or it just runs a little bit warm or it's smaller. But you can adjust as you're going. It's going to take on a tiny bit of color. It's going to come out not the stark white that it went in. It's going to come out almost like a cream color. But if it's turning tan or brown, <laughs> it's caramelizing. The sugars in the recipe are caramelizing, and that's not entirely what we're going for. Now, I love this. After your 75 minutes of baking, if you have an oven light, yes. you should keep your tutu, pavlova, in the oven. Sometimes in recipes, people rotate at the half mm. mark of mm-hmm. baking. You do not open the door with this pavlova because yeah. um, you say there'll be less post-bake cracking That's right. If you, keep the, if you keep the oven door closed. And I love this, too, that you can keep it in the oven with the light on for two hours or up to overnight. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've done it for a couple of days. Yeah, I love it's this. It's not awesome. A couple of days because it actually dries out too much and becomes brittle. Yeah. But the point is that you can leave it in there. Don't open the door because you don't want the moist, especially in summer in Minnesota when it's really humid. You don't want the humidity to get in there. The time that you don't want to be opening and closing the doors is when the pavlova is still hot because you don't want a shock of cold air in there because the change in temperature is what has the potential to make it crack. And so you want that steady heat. That's why I know some recipes you stick a spoon in the door and you open it up and you let that happen. But for this one, because we want that beautiful, smooth side, we don't want that drastic change in temperature. The oven light, the reason that I say to leave that on is because it leaves a little bit of warmth in your oven, continuing to dry it out. And you also say if you don't have an oven light, just bake for a little bit longer Mm -hmm. and do the same kind of resting in the oven. So I don't want people to get nervous if they don't have an oven light. It's time to fill the pavlova. It seems like, at least in a few of the recipes that I looked like, you almost have a layering thing going on Mm -hmm. because you have your curd, but you cut it with a little whipped cream. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have like this curd, whipped cream, then you'll have straight curd, then you'll have berries. How did that come to you? Or was that always just the way that seemed right for this pavlova? Because a typical pavlova is flat, a piece of it isn't like a layered thing like a cake. This, you're getting a fairly tall piece. So I didn't want to just have a huge mound of whipped cream in there because that was going to end up being quite a bit of whipped cream. Like it needed to have more layers and more. Plus, it's just fun. (laughs) It's just fun. We're talking about meringue, which is inherently sweet, right? So you want something that's going to be a nice contrast to that. You want a bitter, a sour, or like a dark chocolate or something that's going to balance out that flavor. So lemon curd, passion fruit curd, something that's bright and bracing is a perfect match for this. The other thing that you want to do is not add anything too liquidy because that's going to end up dissolving your pavlova. Anything that you're putting inside of it is going to be a surprise when you cut into it because you won't be able to see it. It needs to have enough structure that it's going to sit there and not bleed through your meringue. 
If you wanted to add berries that are juicy, you need to fold that into a mousse or a really, really stable whipped cream. Even your marshmallow whipped cream would be awesome for this because you're adding some stability to it. And so that's how that came about, was marrying those textures together so that they would sit still. (laughs) I also love that in the book, you have a great whipped cream. I mean, people think like, oh, whipped cream, you can't improve upon it, but Zoe has, Mm. (laughs) because you have a couple of tricks and techniques for stable whipped cream. Can you walk us through it? I mean, really, the simple rule of thumb is low and slow. Low speed, really slowly done. I whip my whipped cream on medium slow speed. And the reason that I'm doing that is because the higher the speed, the larger the air bubbles that you're putting into your cream. And so you're whipping it really fast and it's going to whip super quickly, but you're going to end up with these giant air bubbles that are then going to collapse. By doing it low speed for a longer amount of time, you're incorporating these tiny little air bubbles that are really strong and they're really stable. I will whip cream and three days later, it's still holding strong. Low and slow until the whisk is almost leaving tracks. Yes. And then finish by hand. And then, yes, 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 yes. Leaving tracks so you know that it's thickened up But you can go too far on the show. I was saying those exact words, but I wasn't paying attention. And I looked down and it was curdling. And there's, you know, you can add a little bit more cream and try to get it back. But I just let it go and actually made butter, which is awesome. I think everybody should make their own butter, but only if you intend to. (laughs) Not if you're trying to make whipped cream. But yes, I always take it off of the mixer and finish it up by hand so that I can see. Again, it's that whole wanting to touch my food thing. I have more control than just looking at it on a machine. And then we're going to refrigerate the filled pavlova Mm -hmm. for about an hour because that will help with slicing. Yes. And then are we slicing with a serrated knife? Mm -hmm. Okay, a long serrated knife. And I thought this is a great segue into just a couple of troubleshooting tips for pavlovas. One of them was don't make ahead and put in the refrigerator. This is not a make-ahead dessert because of getting soggy. Yeah, you can make it hours ahead. I just wouldn't do this a day or two ahead. Yeah, hours is fine in the refrigerator, but refrigerators are actually more humid than I think people give them credit for. It's also not a dessert that you can cover. Maybe if you have a dome, you could do it, but humidity and baked meringues don't love each other. It'll just change the texture of it. It'll still be delicious. It won't have as much structure. This is the kind of thing where you can make it, bake it, leave it in the oven overnight so you don't have to bake it and fill it all in the same day. You can spread things out, but don't fill it and leave it in the refrigerator for days. Makes sense. And the only other thing I wanted to flag, and we've obviously dealt with this issue throughout, but just avoiding cracks, you kind Mm. of like spell it out very (laughs) simply. You make sure you're mixing to the right consistency. You want your stiff peaks so there's not too much expanding once it's in the oven. You want your oven not to be too hot because, again, 
It's all about expansion. Yep. You're going to have too much expansion. You're going to crack. That's right. And then the final is the sugar dissolving in those whites. That's right. Yeah. So that's just good for people to know. I know that can be a scary part of it. Like, oh, it cracked. This is part of the learning curve because, like I said, everybody's mixer is different. Everybody's oven's different. If it cracks, like you said, hopefully through listening to all of these things, you can adjust And so the next time it'll crack less and the next time less and less. I would say the number one reason for cracking is ovens. People bake them too high. I personally have been dropping the temperature. People will notice that the very first video that I did on Instagram around this when I first made this tutu, the oven temperature was higher because I have a big oven and it can handle it. And then I kept getting feedback that their pavlovers were cracking. So I have been dropping the temperature because I think most people's ovens need it to be lower. Before we say goodbye, I just was hoping you could tell us about two other cakes in your book that I love, the OG snack cake. And of course, even though, like, I've considered myself hip, I read that I was like, it's an og cake. I wonder what an og og snack cake. Hmm. So please... (laughs) Peeps, forgive me, I don't get out enough. But the OG snack cake, and I'd love to hear about the plum cake, which you said was one of the favorites in the book. So the OG snack cake came because we couldn't say Twinkie in the book. I couldn't call it Twinkie. Twinkies were my very first introduction to sugar because I grew up on a commune with hippie parents, no sugar. And I went to school, discovered Twinkies in somebody's lunchbox, and it just set the course of my whole life. So, of course, I had to have a Twinkie in there. My Twinkie is made with an olive oil chiffon cake, so it's a little bit different probably than the original recipe, but it's delicious. I love it. And the plum cake, this is, it's so funny because this is really just something that is so satisfying to me on so many levels. The texture of it, the flavors with the tart plums and the almond meal, and it's so simple to make, and it's so rustic. Things don't have to be fancy to be fantastic. This is that cake for me. So easy to put together, but just all of the flavors come together in the perfect balance for me. I love that. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today, Zoe. And I just wanted to say that you are my cherry pie. I loved being here with you. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Le Creuset and California Prunes for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to She's My Cherry Pie on your favorite podcast platform and tell your baking buddies about us. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network and is recorded at City Vox Studios in Manhattan. Our producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker, and our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. Thank you so much for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking!